Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 11th of the 8th. Michael, how have you been since Sunday? I've been fine, Gary. Thank you very much. How have you? Puzzled, Michael. Deeply puzzled. We've talked before about things that happen in Irish politics and how usually you can disagree with them, but you at least understand why they're happening. And even in things that happen, but you don't really understand, you assume there is a reason buried deep in there. Maybe not one that makes sense, but you assume there is a reason. Fianna Fáil has managed to do something which I just can't understand in any way, shape or form. If I think it's what you're referring to, it's what you're referring to, then I think the rest of us are pretty baffled too. And the people who are most baffled are those poor, sad, benighted creatures out there who vote for and work for Fianna Fáil in a non-professional capacity. Yeah, so we have the, the Zappone thing, and that's ticking along. We have leaks from the cabinet. Then when people start focusing on the cabinet leaker, Zappone's party leaks. That draws in Leo again. Leo is looking terrible. The cabinet leaker is looking terrible. Simon Coveney isn't looking great because he you know, was heavily involved as well. And apart from the first part of it, where Martin okayed the appointment, Martin had kind of escaped and was just in the background. Yeah. And then for some reason, Martin is silent for a while, long enough for it to be noted he's been silent. And then he comes out and says he has uh, full confidence in Leo and Fine Gael. Why? In, in concert, that's what we're all saying. Why? Why? Why was it necessary for Fianna Fáil or, and Michal Martin to come out and say, we're happy in the love that burns brightly. It burns brightly, yes. Myself and Leo are... Uh, dedicated, committed couple in a long-term relationship and that's not changing. And a lot of us were thinking, you know, frankly, you've caught him. He's done the dirt on you perfectly well. I mean, maybe not leave him because, let's face it, the prospects out there are not great for Mihal at the moment. But at the very least, you could have metaphorically, you know, cut the legs off his suits or thrown his gear out the front window. Why is... <laughs> I think the funniest thing about this, and I, 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 you must have seen this, Gary, too, is the reaction of some of the more uh, vocal Fianna Fáil activists on social media to this. They're just going, what is going on with you? What I thought was particularly interesting is some of the reactions I've seen from some of the more hardline loyal members of Fianna Fáil, which have been basically identical to those of the more rebellious sort, a sort of generalised, we're doing what now? What's that? Sorry? Because, I mean, if you're you're Martin, things haven't been going well for you. You're basically an appendage in your own government, despite theoretically running it. And then Fegale do this to themselves. Yeah. And it involves the current leader. It involves someone who might one day be leader. It involves one of the people considered to be the forerunners to become leader of Fine Gael, and they're all damaging each other. And instead of just sitting back and letting that happen, and letting them just tear each other to shit, Martin apparently goes, it just doesn't feel right for there to be a scandal of this nature, and for me and Fianna Fáil to not be involved in it. Yeah, and God forbid that people might look at this situation and think that Fianna Fáil were in some way exploiting it for their own good. Maybe saying to some of those Fine Gael voters or those floating voters that maybe once upon a time voted for Fianna Fáil, you know lads, maybe we're not looking so bad now. No, not none of that crass nonsense. Get in there, show your support. It's a team game, Gary, and there's no I in team. I just don't get it. I just don't understand it. I mean, it, it seems, it just seems like Martin... The faintest hope of Martin regaining some popularity or relative power. And he just runs as far away from it as he can. All he had to do was, he, he literally had to do nothing. 
It's something Martin has always been very good at. Occasionally, when I was a young man and would be out late of a night, I would come home and while making myself a cheese sandwich, would turn on the television. And God knows, at half four in the morning, sometimes on BBC Two, there would be programmes from, you know, Open University doing advanced theoretical physics or, you know, postgraduate lessons in differential calculus. I think I understood those problems just about as much or even more than I understand the particular choices that Michal Martin seems to be making at the moment. So much so that I really would quite like to sit down with Michal and say, Michal, explain to me your thinking. Because presumably this wasn't done under the influence of either duress or drugs or psychedelic enhancers or maybe drink. He did this soberly, sanely and voluntarily. So there must be a reason. So Michal, explain it to the I won't, I promise, I promise I won't tell anyone. Maybe I'll tell Gary. But other than that, I'll tell nobody. What the fuck he asked? But I don't think that Michal would explain it to us because I, I, I don't know if he likes us, if he's ever heard of us, which is probably more likely. But anyway, no, it's a, it's a, it's a mystery, Gary. It's an absolute mystery. The, the only explanation, and it's not an explanation, is that he's so terrified that the government may in some sense be destabilised that there is some vague, ambiguous, incohate, undefined threat looming that could possibly trigger an election. And I imagine there are a few things that would frighten the shit out of Michal more than the prospect of having to go and fight an election right now. But I can't see that explanation really, because where's the threat? Where's the instability? No one seriously thinks the government will come down after this. There's no need to prop it up. You just need to stay hands off. Let them tear strips out of each other. They'll damage the current leader. Hopefully they'll damage someone who might be the next leader. Do nothing. And he can't even do that. I mean, he could even exploit it on the other side. Oh, no, no, Michael. Now we're talking about like advanced politics that are beyond the reach <laughs> of Fianna Fáil at this moment. Well, it's almost junior sort of higher maths paper there, I know. But listen, staying quiet, it seems to me, would have been the least complicated and easiest thing to do. But that even is beyond him. You know, if Fianna, if Fianna Gael ministers start being a little bit stroppy about it, you can just point out that you're doing to them exactly what they did to you with the appointment. They just didn't mention it. Just didn't mention it at all. But no, can't even do that. But no, that that's just been a moment of, of deep. And I, I feel, while I am confused by it, Michael, I feel it has been a national bonding moment as well, because no one I've talked to has any fucking idea what's happening. <laughs> this is true. It's just, it's just we're doing this now, okay. But from something like that to a bit of a story that's broken in the uh, United States. Now, the actual breaking of the story, I think, is less important than the actual point that was trying to make. So what happened is a guy called J.D. Vance, who is a Republican, he's in Ohio, he's running for the Senate. He wrote a book a couple of years ago called Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah, very good. I read it. He came out and he was talking at a conference. What he said, he called the Democratic Party the childless left and said it was controlled by people who don't have children, that this meant they didn't have a personal indirect stake in the future of the country because they don't have children. And he asked why this had become a normal thing, that the leaders of the country should be people who don't have a personal indirect stake in it via their own offspring, via their own children and grandchildren. And he named a couple of people in the Democratic Party hierarchy who uh, who don't have children and have gotten up quite high and are you know, in their 
40s and that kind of age, there is an interesting question there. And you see the same thing in Europe as well with an absolutely astounding number of European leaders being childless. The reaction to it was, I would nearly say frenzied. People seem to think that the, the, this very question being brought up was so incredibly offensive and so clearly offensive that it didn't need to be explained why it was offensive at all, that it was simply something that should be never brought up or questioned or even mentioned. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't have children myself. But I think there is definitely a question there as to, obviously you can be patriotic and you can believe in your country and you can be dedicated to the future of it. Is it the case that parents of children have a more visceral, practical uh, connection to the future of where they live because of the fact they have children? I think that's a perfectly fair question to ask. He's kind of making the point that Herman Hoppe, if you remember, rather controversially made in a series of lectures, when he was talking about the difference between heterosexuals and homosexuals in a community. And he got into an awful lot of trouble because he said that gay people tended to be more likely to be high-end consumers and more interested in, shall we say, media gratification than rather long-term investments. Um, I thought it was... Well, I, I would say that I don't think that Herman Hoppe is a friend of... Uh, the gay uh, community. Um, I don't think he said he said some things which I think, frankly, fairly rank. But but the under but the, I don't like the phobe word. But we'll say he's, he's he's a bit of a hater. However, the practical empirical question: Does having children change your disposition about how you live in the world? Sure. Well, Gary, on the face of it, wouldn't it be weird if it didn't? Actually, one of the reviews I once read of this podcast was complaining about a conversation we had had where I said I didn't care about low-cost childcare and didn't see why it was important. And I thought it was terribly offensive that I, as a 30-year-old man, would say that. But I'm a childless man in his 30s. I don't care about that because it has absolutely no impact on me. And people are like that. They have a limited amount of space and scope to... Uh, pay in, uh, to be interested in things and to care about things. Everyone is ignorant about a great deal of things. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, I am personally infinitely empathetic. I am a bit like the Buddha in that regard. So I care about everything and everybody. But I understand that you don't. Um, I would say you don't yet. Maybe you will care. Well, that's the thing. If I had children, I would have an immediate practical reason to care and to care about things like education in a way that... I have an interest in, but I don't have any practical attachment to That would seem to me intuitively to make sense, that it would have to change the way in which you deal with the society in which you live. You can care about people. You can have friends or friends with children. You may care about their children. You may, as I do, have nephews and a niece about whom one cares deeply. But it's a different relationship than you have, I am not I imagine, I know it is, with your own children. So, for example, and we, we won't, we're not discussing the particulars, though we will be talking about that another time, I think, soon, is, say, climate change, right? And one of the big issues at the moment is the rising sea levels. Now, there's a great phrase that I remember from, is it Louis Sixteenth, who said famously, Après moi le déluge, after me the flood. And, you know, when I'm looking and hearing about the, you know, the, the there's a, the, the great oncoming, the rise of meters and tens and tens of meters of uh, sea rises. There is part of me as somebody who is not leaving children behind him, thinking, well, 
If it happens soon, then I'll have sea views from my house, and after that, après moi le déluge. Hey ho, is surely your long term sense. Wouldn't it make evolutionary sense in some sense, Gary, to, that if you have a genetic heritage that you're invested in, that you're going to care more about the circumstances and the environment that that heritage is going to live in? I mean, at a most basic, brutal sort of biological level, that makes sense. And then at a more empathetic, sympathetic level, the way that the fact that you have deep care, love, for these beings that are going to exist in this world after you have long departed this world. Also, Hoppe's point about the economics of being a person with children as opposed to a person without children, surely that must affect the way you, you consider the kind of consumption that you engage in, the kind of investments that you make, the kind of provision that you make for the future. Because if it didn't, it would be very, very weird. Yeah, I mean, that, that would seem, that would all seem perfectly reasonable. But what is interesting is, I, I think, one, the reaction that the question got when Vance put it forward. And some of that is going to be partisan because it's America, and of course it is. But I, I wonder if some of it is perhaps people, Michael, who have engaged in particular ways of living in order to advance their own status or for their own economic benefit and are now somewhat unhappy with how that has turned out. It might be, but I think more likely it sounds like he's making a judgment about a certain kind of lifestyle. What he's doing is it, it sounds like he may be saying, and I don't know if this is what he's saying, but it sounds like that one type of life, one type of existence, is in, a, in some kind of moral sense better than another. So that is more satisfying, more rewarding. Or even if he's not saying that, it's that if you want to build a world which is forward-looking, which concern, it's concerned about the future, you're not effectively going to do that if you don't have a sense of investment in that future. No. One of the running sores in American politics for a very long time now has been uh, funding of social welfare, right? Or the lack of funding of social welfare. And what the, one of the themes in this debate has been the fact that what essentially is happening is the current consumers of social welfare in the United States are essentially long-fingering the payment of it and, and postponing the funding of this to future taxpayers. So in a sense, it's a, it's a presentist, presentist, yes, presentist disposition towards a, a form of taxation where you say, as long as we get what we get now, we don't really care what's going to happen in the future because we're not going to be here. And the, the kids in the future can pay for it, so that's okay. And maybe in a sense he's talking about that, that, that willingness to have our cake today be, because somebody in the future will, have, will pay for it and will have no cake. But there is definitely a sense of a, of a judgment about it. I mean, when you've got... It, and it's something, in, isn't it? It's a bit in the air at the moment. If you, anybody ever listens to Jordan Peterson, let's face it, these days it's kind of hard at some stage not to listen to Jordan Peterson. You have, he, he, like he talks about meaning. And he says, you know, if you reach a certain point in your life and you're not in a, in a, in a fixed, committed, long-term relationship and you have no children... Well, it's very, very difficult for you to extract meaning from your life. And this, he, there is this sense that 
having children is some one of those foundational things which gives to human beings meaning and if you don't have kids and that's not where you are you may feel like you're you're being told that you are in some sense less i don't know living a life which is less valuable less meaningful slightly less human i don't know and i, I could see that people might hear that and remember I will, i'll finish here one of the big themes for the progressive liberal uh, worldview since oh well all through the 20th century but certainly has um, certainly after the second world war it has been about the control of fertility and the great triumph of the 20th century was the ability not to have children first of all with the introduction of the contraceptive pill which meant that women could control their fertility and have or not have children as when they pleased now although that's not quite true because they could choose not to have children and then they could postpone childbearing but then a lot of women found that maybe actually postponing it turned out that it was rather more difficult to to get what they had perhaps really wanted when they, they postponed it and then of course abortion has meant that even if the contraceptive pill or whatever other form of contraception or absence of contraception you're using then you have the choice you have in a sense control over nature that side of nature which previously you had been the victim of you had been out of control if you had sex there was a constant and permanent risk shall we say of pregnancy and that is one of the great successes post-war for the liberal because it means that the individual is liberated to some degree from the tyranny of their own biology so they can make those authentic individualistic choices but it's a radical individualism and he and this is the critique from the right is that maybe that kind of radical atoma, maybe even slightly atomic individualism is not the pathway to perfect happiness and to a better society long term you said you said there that the um you were talking about the freedom to not have children very minor point but it was rather the freedom to have sex without having children. Yes. You always had the freedom not to have children. But you couldn't engage in other natural impulses without running those risks. What you were talking there about how it sounds like a, a moral judgment of them. Mm -hmm. But it could also just be a, a general judgment of them. Are you familiar with the idea of a mimetic theory? Yes. To the listener, it was... Largely associated with a, a French philosopher, because of course it was, called uh, René Girard. His most famous quote on the topic was that man is the creature who does not know what to desire, and he turns to others in order to make up his mind. Uh, we desire what others desire because we imitate their desires. Yes. We actually look at human behaviour, a lot of the, the studies into human behaviour. An amazing amount of it is based around status particularly in the eyes of others. So if you were a person who has engaged in a particular life path and part of that was putting off children or having children very late and you haven't quite got to that point yet, you have made quite considerable sacrifices if that was what you wanted to do in exchange partially for status. So if someone turns around, puts forward something that makes it sound like actually what you are doing is not high status at all, it's kind of self-destructive and foolish and actually should be viewed as a negative. Yeah. Well, firstly, you've traded your a great deal of what you wanted for absolutely nothing if the status is removed from your views. Mm -hmm. And then if Gerard is right and a lot of people are doing things because they are trying to imitate what others want, well, any suggestion that actually, no, you picked the wrong thing, that's not what people wanted at all. 
doesn't reflect well on you. No. Um, I think there are problems with mimetic theory, I mean. Oh, it's tons of them. Yeah, but it, there is no doubt that there are things that we desire. I think economists call them positional goods, is it? Positional goods, which are things we desire because they confer a certain status on us or they act as badges so other people can see us uh, in, a, in, the, in the context that we want people want them to see us. So it's not that the, the, action, the thing itself may have a, a particular intrinsic value, but the, the value beyond its intrinsic value, its practical value, is the thing that it says about us and the status and the position that we occupy. The economist's phrase is that the utility of the good is primarily derived from the others seeing the consumption of the good. But say, you're going back to, you're saying it, maybe it's not a moral judgment, maybe it's just a general observation, but you know, it's very hard to separate those two things. Like say, say you're uh, say you're Aristotle, right? Just for the minute. And Aristotle says that all men desire, and by that he means all human beings desire happiness. And if you derive, if you sort of follow an Aristotelian approach to the idea of ethics or, or morality, you, you're, you're not a, an ontological, you're not like a Kantian, or you're not a utilitarian. You're a virtue ethicist. Vir, virtue ethicists will say that morality. You construct morality by understanding what what is it that most perfectly contributes to human flourishing, right? Now, if you're making a comment about those things which at a very ultimate or fundamental level most contribute to the flourishing of the human being, and you're saying that one of those fundamental things is family, relationships, children, well, you are making ultim- a kind of a, a very ultimate and fundamental moral comment because that is the if if we are to be directed towards those things which flourishes and that is what it is to live in the sort of the socrates in socrates sense the good life well then it's very hard not to see this in some way as a kind of a moral judgment and you know it's one of the things we hear it's become a kind of a cliche of the sitcom when people talk about say second wave feminism and the promises of second wave feminism in the 70s, where women were told, you can have it all. This is the, the cliched phrase, you can have it all. You can have the career, you can have the money, you can have the freedom, you can have the respect, you can have the autonomy, and you can have the other things that you used to have, like the family and the, and the relationships and the husband and the children or whatever it is. And now part of it is they lied to us. You can't have it all. Or if you're having it all, you're having it all in a very kind of a, a circumscribed fashion, no, not in the way that you dreamed of, not in the classic American dream picket fence situation. It's it's a, it's a, it's a form of having it all that is not quite as satisfying or as ideal as people had been told that they could have. That in fact there are choices, there are trade offs. Well, you know, again, if the world of economics, you're talking about economics. Well, go figure. There are trade-offs. You choose one thing over another. You you close one door, you open another. You make choices. And those choices, well, have consequences, which is one of the most terrifying things that we realize in life, isn't it, Gary? When we want that terrible moment when we realize choices have consequences. Well, one could argue that the root of freedom is merely the acknowledgement that you are responsible for your own actions. I see you're being a stoic there, aren't you? 
I'm just making a general point about personal responsibility and freedom. By rejecting the slavery that comes with being simply the victim of our own desires and our own willing will to immediately gratify those desires, then we can become free in a way that is more fundamental than simply giving in to what we want at any one time. And we can go on and satisfy, in, in the longer term, more perfect and, more, and deeper desires. Well, you could say that, but... I couldn't possibly comment. You come, we could ask Marcus Aurelius, but he's dead. He did kill quite a lot of people before he got there, though. I think you're on to, you're you're right, though. That what's really interesting about this kind of comment is not just the reaction, but it's the intensity of the reaction and the responses. They feel like this is something personal. This isn't just a political thing. It's a personal thing. It's an attack on them. But it is a personal thing as well. I mean, because he's specifically saying you don't have kids. Neither of us have children. I didn't take it as an offence. I merely took it as a question. And there is absolutely, I think, a question there. And you have to say, look at... I, I remember there was an essay that uh, went around there a few years, fairly recently, when somebody did a count of the, mm, of the, the top 15 most powerful political leaders in Europe. And you have to say, it was kind of bizarre, the number of them that were childless. I think that was around 2017. Um, and yeah, there were a couple of studies looking at European leaders and how often they had children. And it, it was like way out of whack with not just the general population, but high performing populations, high status, high value fields. People in those fields tend to have children. Like at the time, Macron has no children. Merkel has no children. Theresa May was prime minister, I think, at the time. Theresa May. I don't think his children. I think it was Leo Varadkar Taoiseach at the time. He was, yeah. And we didn't have Boris Johnson, you know, bringing up the average. Boris is, I was going to say, knocked it out of the park again. Boris is now, uh, I believe, expecting another child. Or at least his, his wife is. No one seems to know how many children Boris Johnson actually has. Well, the joke there is, of course, to wonder if Boris knows. But it, it is curious, though, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it should be something that you should reasonably about to ask. Is there something going on? And does it have an effect on the way we do politics when that number of people at the helm, say, of European politics don't have children? Does that not have a consequence? Studies I've read and just friends I have and looking at the changes in their life. Having a child seems to be possibly the largest and most impactful event in any of these people's lives. From, from that story about children, Michael, to another story about children. So I, I was reading the um, the Oregonian. As you do. I read a surprising amount of statewide American newspapers. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised, Gary. Long stopped being surprised. Oregon has a governor called Cape Brown. Now, Cape Brown has now signed into law something which will allow students in Oregon to graduate without proving that they can write or are literate or that they can do math. So you can be illiterate and enumerate yeah. and still graduate high school. They're their equivalent of secondary school here. And that's going to be for, I think, the next five years. Now, they've said they are reviewing the issue and that they're going to be looking at new requirements moving forward. That in its, that its own was interesting. But then, when they were asked by um, the Oregonian what exactly, why exactly they had done this and what it was meant to do, the government's deputy communications director, a guy called Charles Boyle, 
said that the move would benefit Oregon's black Latino, Latina, Latinx, indigenous, Asian, Pacific Islander, tribal and students of colour. How? Michael, leaders from these communities have advocated time and again for equitable graduation standards along with expanded learning opportunities and supports. Did you say in that list Asian? Yes, yes, they're still there. Yeah, I'm sceptical that a lot of Asians were campaigning massively for more equitable uh, well actually that may not be true they just they made some they may they may mean something rather different when they say equitable because that's another battle that's being fought at the moment in the united states is the obviously racist rules that are used against asian students in admission to a third level institutions but re- right now uh, it's a big thing in new york where there are some of what they call the the um they're the elite schools in new york uh, there's one, it's Bronx Science, I think it's a, it's a science-based school, I mean, there are a couple of others. And the, the, the school population is dominated by people from the continent of Asia. And they want, they, I say there are politicians in New York who, who don't feel this fully represents and re- reflects the diversity of the city. And that it needs to be changed. And the way to change it is to fiddle around with the testing uh, schemes or get rid of the testing schemes for some people in order to achieve what will eventually ultimately mean fewer Asians. What we saw here is Democrats overwhelmingly supported it. Republicans said this is a lowering of academic standards. Some of them also said it was racist, which I think is actually quite a good point on this. But this is something we've seen across all of America, a pushback against standardised testing Yes, in the name of racial equality. Now, the thing about this bill, there's two things I think about these bills. If you are removing these requirements, one presumes it is so that you can improve college attendance rates for minority students. I don't really see how removing these standards does this, because removing the pressure of the standards would... The likely result of that would seem to be lower reading and... uh, and math standards. And in fact, the Oregonian mentions in their article that when they suspended the graduation requirements, a lot of the high schools had had basically workshops on this. Yeah. That you could go to to you know, quickly skill up in them. And they stopped them. Because why would you bother? Yeah. Also, I'm, I'm not terribly okay with the American educational system as regards access to third level colleges. But it seems to me that must mean only some access to some college because most universities use the SATs at least in, in part as the, uh, the as the way to access and even if you you don't take a, a standardized test to decide whether or not you graduate or standardized tests during your high school uh, in, and you get a, a passing grade cumulatively from those tests you still if you don't have you still have to SAT and the SATs will decide whether or not you get into college. No, it is also true that because of diversity and affirmative action, although it's not called affirmative action anymore in these cases because affirmative action was a couple of cases, I think, found to be uh, unconstitutional, so it's it's slightly changed, that um, people from certain ethnic, ethnic or racial backgrounds will be admitted to universities with an SA, with a, a, an SAT score lower than would be expected for other ethnic groups. Now, Glenn Lowry, the professor of economics at Brown University 
in in Providence has pointed out that of course what this creates is two things. First of all, a, 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 this incredible competition in order to fill your diversity quotas amongst all the universities. Now he said it was he says actually something I thought was very interesting. It doesn't actually affect the very tip top colleges like say Harvard, and Yale, and Brown and Columbia or whatever because they get the cream of the crop. Now, even if these are kids who are very often with scores which are below, say, the parallel scores of their Asian or their or their white cohort, and may not, depending on the schools they've gone to, had the same kind of broader extracurricular preparation for these elite schools, a lot of them have because a lot of them are children's architects and lawyers and doctors, so they, they, they're, they're actually coming from kind of upper middle class backgrounds themselves. It's lower down at the, the, the sort of the state college levels where you, you're getting this really bad mismatch. You know this mismatch theory? Yeah, Thomas uh, Thomas Sowell talked about it. Sowell, Sowell, Sowell has written about it, but it, the, the idea precedes Sowell. I think it was a, a lawyer, I think, maybe from, from California, possibly... UCLA, I, I, I can't remember, but it was before so, had looked at this. And the idea is that when you put people in to classes where they, the, the most of the people in the class have a, have a, are at a point of preparation. It's not that they're brighter than you necessarily, but they have a, they have a better preparation to get there than you do. And you're in the bottom 10%, that that's a very strong predictor that you are more likely to drop out of those courses or not to graduate at all. And very often, these kids would have actually been better off going to a school which was lower down the food chain, where the, where they would have actually ended up graduating, doing quite well, not being as pressured, not being under the cosh all the time. And this mismatch is actually leading to a terrible drain of human capital, a waste of human capital, of bright, bright kids from the African-American community who are being fed into to feed a diversity virtue desire but actually are being sacrificed on the altar of that desire by not being allowed to achieve uh, the outcomes that they would they would be if they were going to to colleges that were more more perfectly matched their needs the second thing i i think about this is that policy is very clearly racist if you if you remove reading standards in order to improve the performance of black students you are very clearly making a statement about what you think the capabilities of black students are. If you were a black student in this school system, <laughs> suddenly the governor says, you don't need to show that you can read or write or do maths before you graduate, and we're doing this to help you. Yeah. I don't think you'd be deeply impressed and thankful for her help, because it does carry a very direct message of, well, like, could you have done this? It, well, it was George W. Bush's famous phrase: "The what, the racism, what was it? The soft race racism of lower expectations." A while ago, I did an interview with uh, Catherine Burblesing, who is the headmistress of a, a British school called Michaela, and they have very strict school, very old-fashioned in part of its te- teaching methodology, and the idea that students are there to learn and teachers are there to teach, and it's not a collaborative experience amongst friends. And I don't know if it was on the podcast or afterwards, but we're talking about racism and and racial impacts. And she was making the point, a lot of these students, there is an assumption that they're incapable of performing. Yeah. And it's not coming from 
right-wing conservatives and racists. It's coming from wonderfully progressive people who've convinced themselves of things which are pretty clearly deeply racist. Like, there is a deep... I've thought this for many years, just from talking to people in the area. There is a pretty deep and abiding sense of racism in a lot of progressive thought. And it's very much in that tyranny of low expectations, take up the white man's burden kind of racism, where you know you're helping, but you don't really think the people you're helping are quite on the same level as you were. I think there may be that. I, but I can I offer a, a slightly more cynical observation as well? Please do. You have a choice. If you have black kids consistently underperforming in comparison to other groups... And you have large swathes, particularly in urban America, of students from minorities not getting anywhere near where they should be. They would be expected to, at their reading level, their writing, le- their le- writing level, or their numeracy level. And they're just the standardized tests. And by the, the idea of the standardized test being racist is a very, very old. This is not new. You can. There, Thomas Sowell has an article from 1970. Uh, talking about the idea that standardized testing is racist. He's still a faculty member. I mean, it's that long ago when Saul is talking about this. But you have a choice. You can either do what happened when I was living in Rome, when they had a problem with the air pollution, and when the air pollution reached a certain point, they had to do certain things. And they stopped, and so they stopped having cars on Sundays and stuff. And then it was all solved. I said, no, they got the air pollution solved. No, they just changed the standards. So that what used to be polluted isn't polluted anymore. So you can change the standards. Or, Gary, you could address the fact that schools are failing to teach black kids properly. Now, remember, what is the single most important political lobby group for the Democratic Party? Uh, Unions. Teachers' unions. Teachers' unions, particularly New York. Teachers' unions run the, the Democratic Party in New York and in other urban states in the north so you have a choice you can and it's also i mean people we have an idea over here maybe that you know americans oh it's it's money the kind of money that is spent on public schools in new york and in say washington dc is horrendous in comparison to say uh, charter schools or parochial schools which have vastly better outcomes They've lavished money on them. They've been lavishing money on them for years. But the results get just worse. The gaps grow. Thomas Sowell talks about the fact that if you go back to... You look at Washington, D.C., and you compare the schools in Washington, D.C., between those schools which are primary, or principally uh, ethnic minority, black, Hispanic, and schools which are dominated by white students, that the gaps in in the results are massive. But he points out that if you go back to pre-civil rights, there was there was a, a high school in Washington called Dunbar High School, which was very famous at the time. And there were others, I think there were two, where they consistently not only matched, but actually exceeded the scores being achieved by the princi- by the, the by the time they they segregated white high schools in the in the DC area, he said today that would seem like an impossible pipe dream that you would match those results, let alone exceed them. It's Sol says simply it is, it was in the past and in much much more difficult circumstances in a much more racist America, and in a school system where undoubtedly 
black schools were less funded and less supported, it was still possible to have black schools where the students learned and outperformed white students. But rather than look at that and say, well, maybe there's something we need to do with the school system, it's much easier to say, oh, let's just, the it's the tests, you know, the tests are racist. We have to get rid of the tests because that's what's holding people back. Going back to, to Catherine Burble saying, you used to hear a lot about her school when it started. It was only the last kind of two years. It was 2019 they got their first uh, GCSE results, the, the British Leaving Cert. And there was so much talk about it before that, about how it was, you know, it was an old model of education. It wasn't fit for the current era. Pretty sure there were newspapers that explicitly said it, that some of the disciplinary measures like silence in the hallways and things like that constituted child abuse because of their strictness. And there were many, many things up to the first GCSE results and then the first GCSE results and they got reported and then everyone just kind of, all the people who've been attacking the school then just decided it was time to never talk about it again. Because the thing about the school was it took, as I said, an old style approach to education. It was very big into the classics. It was very big on communal meals as well and trying to actually you know, build a culture of dignity. But one of the things about it is it draws in from the local population. It's not a selective school as such. They have high behavioural standards, but they take in heavily from the area around them. They're in London, so it's very non-white. It's very poor in parts. And then when the grades came in, more than half of all the grades that children in the school achieved would have been the equivalent of an A or an A+. More than twice the national average. Oh, the results are tremendous. I mean, I follow Catherine Birbal Singh on Twitter, and today, funny you should mention this, she was tweeting photographs of some of her students who are now f finishing up. And she has kids going on to Oxford, to Cambridge. Kind of kids that nobody would have believed that these were kids that were going to go on to an Oxbridge education. But she has kids going to, Ox to Oxford, to Cambridge, to University College London, to St Andrews, to the great universities, to highly competitive courses. She has been enormously successful. It's worth pointing out, she would say, yeah, that it's a system, it's obviously it's based on respect and on discipline, but she would say that students are expected to respect their teachers and teachers are expected to love their students because it, sometimes it has been betrayed in the press, that the negative press, that it's a, this cold Dickensian grad grind kind of a place where it's, it's like virtual, vir virtually child abuse. She would say that it's all, it's because they care deeply, their teachers love the kids, and that that is, a, that is as much a part of the environment. And the kids are allowed to feel safe. One of the interesting points she brought up when I was talking to her was that they have effectively ended bullying within the school for the very simple reason that you walk in silence between the classrooms, the classrooms are run on a strict discipline line, where exactly are you going to be able to bully someone? And they would have zero tolerance for it if it did come up. Now, she did make the point that obviously with social media and things outside the school, you can't control it. And she makes the point that you're dealing with kids, many of whom are coming from homes where the norm is chaos. Right. She was saying she, they had students and they would have the communal kind of lunch and the teachers and the students eat in the same room. And they'll, you know, many of them to a table and they split up into groups. I just think they had students who had never used a knife and fork before. But, and this is a secondary school. They had to be shown how to do it. The thing I find interesting, and, and she was talking about this herself, where if you tell people or you demonstrate to them that there is no expectation upon them 
that they are able to achieve anything. What will happen is that you will have certain people who will continue to achieve, but they will tend to be people from families who put a high emphasis on that already. And those families tend to be wealthier, they tend to be better educated. They're not really impacted by things like this. Where you see the impact is poorer students, students who live in you know, homes where maybe they don't have both parents, maybe there is a general sense of chaos, as you said. Maybe it's something which is not conducive to a child spending a lot of time reading or being educated. Those are the children who'll suffer when you remove the drive for standards from schools. I also, but I, one of the reasons also I said, I, I mentioned chaos is because one of the things that she feels is very important is that you you can't expect these children to thrive if all of their life is a chaos. So if they're coming from chaotic situations, it's very, very important that school is not chaotic, that school is a place where they can experience order and quiet and, and consequently feel safe. One of the things, I mean, we've, anybody, experience of children, child psychologists, one of the things that children want are boundaries and rules because they, first of all, they, while it might seem counterintuitive, the fact that you give them boundaries and you give them rules and you give them limits is a way of saying that you care about them, that you actually, you're invested in them and you will not allow them to do things that you believe will be damaging to them. And children ultimately experience that as a form of care, but also that by creating these boundaries, you make them feel safe because it's predictable. And children who live in chaos, for them, predictability is incredibly refreshing. Because if you live in chaos all the time, and anybody who's lived in chaos will tell you, it's exhaustingly tiring. It's an exhausting experience to have constantly chaos. And she creates this oasis where they give, they have the opportunity to thrive. And they are thriving. And it's not just, shall we say, I mean, you said that there is no selection, that's right. They've been criticized, oh, well, you know, they're, they're special needs students. So actually, their special needs students perform as well as the non-special needs students do proportionately speaking from the the level the advances they make from the point of their point of departure they do as well as the the other children do from their point of departure to where they arrive so it is a, it's a school which meets the needs of all of its, its students and it's, she's doing a tremendous job there now and one of the things i thought was particularly interesting when she's talking about communal mo- uh, meals and everyone would eat together was mm-hmm. that they would do things like uh, ask children to bring up one thing they were grateful for in a day. Yes. And go from child to child. They said they were just trying to build a very particular type of character. And it's one of those things that people, I think, don't like to talk about. That education is effectively the indoctrination of children. But it's inevitable. You cannot educate children without indoctrinating them. But it's a question of what you want to instill in them. And to what extent you want to indoctrinate them. In general, I think a lot of people would take that you indoctrinate the least amount possible where you can make a claim that it's just socialization. But there is an element of character building, and it seems we don't like people talking about that aspect of education. Possibly, I would suspect, because if you start talking about it, people start paying a lot of attention to exactly what's happening in schools. There's that sense also that these are schools which make demands on children, which we're being constantly told are children who are not capable of meeting those demands. I, I, if we look at our own his, educational history here, and God knows they failed at in, in at different times and in different places, and they failed very badly. But the Christian Brothers were set up by Edmund Ignatius Rice 
in order to educate poor Catholic children when it was otherwise there was no other Catholic boys, in fact, when there was no there was no real option for them. And one of the things that we I've talked to people I I'm a brother's boy myself and I experienced it, but I've talked to, to men much older than me who say, from Dublin who went to say O'Connell schools or Sing Street. And it, Gary, it is remarkable if you look at the political life of our, uh, of of Dublin and Ireland, say from the fifties, sixties and it up, um and the upper echelons of, say, the civil service, the number of those people who came from O'Connell schools and Sing Street and, and other, because they, 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 these men would say to you, we had, the, we had no excuses. We were not allowed to have excuses. There was an expectation that we would do well, that we would work hard and we could get whatever the, whatever results we wanted as long as we would invest. And almost by implication, if not actually explicitly, and sometimes explicitly it would be said, that we could be as good as the boys from Belvedere or Blackrock or Terranur. That they were, there was that sense that they could achieve and they, a sense of ambition and a desire to, to succeed. In what at times I'm sure was a rather a brutal atmosphere, which certainly not Michaela, certainly not that, but I'm talking historically here. And I certainly, I had that in the school. I went to, I led to a school of 300 kids where we literally, I mean, I don't want to sound like a bad Monty Python sketch, but where we, the, the prefabs, which had been temporary in, uh, implants had been, were there 30 years later when I was in them, where we li literally had broken windows covered over with a potato pack because I don't know if they didn't have the money or the time or the expertise to put a pane of glass in it, but it wasn't a well-maintained school. But there was an expectation that we would excel and the results were excellent and i look at the guy the 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 outcomes of the guys that were in in, in my class in school and it's remarkable how well they did in comparison to any they they would i would happily take my my class results against any school in ireland and it would compare very very well but i i you're dealing with kids maybe not so much obviously in the 80s and 90s but in small town ireland but once upon a time, poor kids or poorer kids, but no, ex there were no excuses. They could do it, and very often they did. Now that's not to say that you don't have to have a recognition that you're dealing with children at different times, different places, but maybe have a particular experience and need particular kinds of approach. I don't know, but I think what she's doing in that school, and not just in that school, um, there was a. Have you ever come across any? Uh, thing about there was a, a it was actually a christian brother school in a, the in the in the a con, the poorest congressional district in the united states in new york and its results were incredible very traditionally run very traditional education and this is rep replicated all across the united states and people have been studying it for years the mystery in the united states of the success of the Catholic parochial schools. Because the parochial schools, much less well-funded, teachers much less well-paid than in the public school system. But they do very well. And the, the, the particular thing which has slightly annoyed and slightly baffled people from a certain perspective is that the people who, shall we say, proportionately do best of all are boys from ethnic minorities 
and from extremely deprived areas. Because it was said, ah, well, you're, you know, there's selection going on and you've got the suburbs and these are fee paying, whatever. But in fact, the boys that saw the biggest proportionate increase in their outcomes were those from the poorest areas, from single parent families, from high crime areas and from ethnic minorities and from very often non-Catholics, which isn't the story that people wanted. But it was a very traditional, old fashioned, if you like, kind of education. Looking at this, we were talking about this school's results. 18% of all of their grades in 2019 were 9s. Now, in the GSCA system, in the British system, that is an A+. The average, the national average, was 4.5%. That's remarkable. If you can take a load of working class minority students who don't have the supports that you would see in some of the more prestigious schools, and you can return a result four times better than the national average. Surely that would indicate that these children, if put into a proper environment and pushed to excel, can excel. And then on the other hand, you have people saying, well, the results are down, therefore we're just going to make it so that you don't have to be literate to graduate. And sure, what I would say is if, if it goes one way and you can push these children to excel and you can get these results, surely it goes the other as well. And if you simply say, well, look, you can't do this. You don't have to be literate. Don't worry about it. Surely that's going to have a deleterious effect. It's not an accident that charter schools are not popular in the United States with teachers unions for all sorts of reasons. And they're very unpopular, very unpopular with the, with the Democratic Party. And one of the central mechanisms for the support of charter schools and even potentially for denominational schools, and remembering that in the United States there is an absolute allergy to the idea that any kind of state funding should go into any kind of institution that has a connection with with a religion because of how the separation of church and state has been understood by the courts in the last 40 or 50 years. However, Part of the, the mechanism has been the use of vouchers where parents or other children can bring funding with them to whatever school they attend. So the, the chunk of money that is available to each child that would nor, which could, would normally go to a public school, it can, it can go wherever the child goes. The Democratic Party is implacably opposed as a principle, generally speaking, to the use of vouchers. But Gary, what group when polled in the United States, is most strongly in favour, would you guess, of vouchers? I believe it is urban blacks. Yes, indeed. And it is beyond comical for people who are so desperate to show their absolute commitment to anti-racism and to diversity and to the uplift of the poor black community and to see them saying, yes, yes, that's all very well, but you don't really understand what it is you're looking to do. We understand it much better. So we're not going to give you these vouchers because you wouldn't be able to use them right. It wouldn't work. Uh, no, we'll, we'll manage it because these are the same people who have been managing the public school system in these urban areas for the last 60, 70, whatever years and have done such a bang up job that they're now graduating children who can read or write. I suspect the uh, African-American parents who are desperately lobbying for the uh, 
for the voters are the ones who have got who have worked out what the way to go is here and not the the uh, school district apparatchiks of the Democratic Party who are desperate to keep hold of their very nicely paying jobs. So I suppose we will leave it at that, Michael. We will be back on Friday, where I assume we will be talking about the climate and carbon taxes. Oh, joy. All the best. <laughs>